0: Coming up, Marina Hyde on Matt Hancock's impending career move to the jungle. Journalist Joe Stone asks, can a psychologist fix my diet and transform my life? Columnist Zoe Williams meets lifelong LGBTQ plus and human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell in the wake of a recent expulsion. And finally, writer Louis Staples guide on how to have a healthy digital breakup. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, given the last few months, anyone would be forgiven for asking, how much more risible can the Tories get? Turns out, in a move that we should have all seen coming, former health secretary Matt Hancock has announced a stint in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He may have lost the Tory whip, but Marina Hyde wonders, will he find himself? Read by Emma Stannard
1: appalling news for exotic animal genitalia, as it is revealed that former Health Secretary Matt Hancock will be going into the I'm a Celeb jungle. I know, it's simultaneously the very last thing you want to see, and also all you want to see. To any Guardian readers prompted to email me with something along the lines of, actually, I wouldn't dream of seeing this, do please take the following column as a thank you for your message but also understand that it could be December before I am able to formally get back to you. I find that in November I will mostly be watching Matt Hancock on I'm a Celebrity. The details as we have them are thus. As the ITV series launches on Sunday night, Hancock will materialise in the Australian bush having either arrived by air or simply passed through a haunted dunny. In terms of Matt's long but remorseless journey towards being Prime Minister, this is probably his equivalent of Churchill's stint in the Second Boer War. That said, he has immediately lost the Tory whip, but maybe he'll find something much more precious. Himself. He will certainly take part in a series of challenges and trials with campmates including Mike Tindall, Boy George, Corrie's Sue Cleaver, Loose Women's Charlene White and a load of other people who didn't lecture you like a try-hard PSHE teacher for the whole of 2020 and half of 2021 while tens of thousands of people died needlessly on his watch. A source close to Hancock told The Guardian that the serving MP has been considering the show's offer for a while, but only feels able to do it now because the government is stable. Amazing. For a while back there, it was clear things were so bad they couldn't withstand the market-moving spectacle of boy George mugging him off round the campfire, while Matt covered his mic and hissed, please think of what this will do to guilt yields. But now, things are so bad it literally doesn't even matter. In terms of the various tried and tested I'm a celeb game plans open to Matt, I'm trying to think of what would be the most banter outcome. Then again, it's all banter, isn't it? The second the genius behind the care badge got on the flight to Queensland, we already reached banter nirvana. Hang on. Wait, there is one way this could go supra banter. Specifically, Hancock could do that little introductory piece to camera all the contestants do and keep a big reveal till the end. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm 44. I'm an MP. Quite random, I know. And I'm here to maximise growth. Personal growth. Anything else? Oh yeah, newly single. I'm not looking for love but I'm not not looking for it either. Like I say, that's just storyboarding and not in-game footage. There is absolutely no suggestion Matt has recently parted company with former Spadu-like Gina Colodangelo. nor that he will be pictured in a clinch against the Bush telegraph door with Love Island alumna Olivia Atwood. But look, If it does happen, I am available to go on any number of wanky news programmes and discuss what it says about British politics. I truly adore these studio-based think pieces, in which no one is ever allowed to reply by simply cackling, I mean, honestly, Nick, what do you think it fucking says? Sorry, but spare us so much as a single, self-styled, serious news anchor attempting to use Hancock's appearance to provoke debate. You know the sort of thing. Is this actually quite clever on his part? In a world where people are turning off politicians, is this a way of getting them to tune back in? Guys, please, please don't attempt to intellectualise Matt Hancock's turn in the jungle. Just experience it as a feeling. Let it wash over you like a really iconic I'm a celeb waterfall shower scene. As for what's brought all this on, who can say? This week has certainly seen eye-catching merchandising moves in the Matt Hancock space. Only on Monday we got what felt like a rushed reveal of the cover of his Pandemic Diaries, which are now being published on December the 6th. A little late to be formally considered a Christmas title perhaps timed for the lucrative dry January market. That said, if you are short of a present, I think I can say with some confidence that were you to enter a local bookshop slash the works at 6.59pm on 24th December, copies of this book will be available and would surely delight any family member you wish to threaten with the bacon scissors before Christmas lunch. In fact... The book looks so insultingly dreadful that it would ironically make the perfect gift for Matt Hancock. We learn from various publicity material that the Pandemic Diaries is based on the author's contemporaneous records of those extraordinary months. I keep thinking of the bit in The Importance of Being Earnest, where Algie asks Cecily if he can read her diary and she goes, oh no, you see it is simply a very young girl's record of her own thoughts and impressions and consequently meant for publication. Although, if memory serves, Cecily did not produce her diary, as Hancock has done, in collaboration with Isabel Oakshott. Anyway... If Matt does go on to diversify into a fragrance line, and on this form you certainly wouldn't rule it out, you could easily see it being called something like Divorce by Matt Hancock. As for what to expect in his forthcoming I'm a Celeb appearance, let's extemporise. Hancock fashioning a football out of palm fronds and badgering Jill Scott to beat him at keepy-uppies. Hancock throwing a protective ring round the camp's elders, all of whom immediately get medevaced out. Conversations around the campfire, in which Hancock tells Chris Moyles, Ultimately, what happened is that I fell in love. Is that a crime? If so, lock me up and throw away the key. Hancock deciding Mike Tyndall is a fellow alpha male and attempting to form an alliance with him. Together, we could rule the jungle. Tyndall declining. Tyndall engineering things so that he faces off against Hancock in a bush tucker trial. Tyndall just staring dead eyed and unblinking at Hancock as he boshes round after round of animal dick and the former health secretary fails to keep up. Tyndall's sheer avenging willpower breaking Matt's spirit until he succumbs to a live, category five spiritual meltdown and full public apology. Cop that scrappy do. The darkest potential timeline, obviously, is that the British phone voting public takes to Matt of the Jungle and he actually goes on to win the show. If that happens, the ban on think pieces is obviously immediately rescinded and I will personally join the growing numbers of people who are turning away from the very idea of democracy. See you in the militias.
0: That was Great News for the Economy, Britain is now stable enough for Matt Hancock to eat genitals on I'm a Celeb, read by Emma Stannard. Next, after coping with the embarrassment of being a self-proclaimed fussy eater his entire life, Joe Stone decided enough was enough and finally reached out for help with his phobia. But will it change his picky palate for good? Read by George Georgiou.
2: Is anyone more reviled than fussy eaters? Exclude the obvious candidates, murderers, estate agents, Piers Morgan, and it seems unlikely. It's unfortunate that an era in which half the population identify as foodies has coincided with one in which the other half are convinced that eating wheat, gluten or nightshades will result in certain spiritual death. Worse still are people who swerve entire food groups on the basis of bizarre childhood whims That should have been abandoned with their teddy bears. I should know. I'm one of them. My diet is comfortably one of the top three most annoying things about me. And I say that as someone whose signature karaoke song is a 10-minute Taylor Swift epic about Jake Gyllenhaal losing her scarf. A non-exhaustive list of foods that I have never eaten includes lettuce, onions, carrots, cucumber, tomatoes, unless in a sauce of ketchup, mushrooms eggs of any kind, I could go on. As a child, I remember an aunt reassuring my stressed-out parents that I was statistically unlikely to grow into an adult who ate only fish fingers and chips. Well, here we are. If you bumped into me in the supermarket today, you'd be forgiven for deducing from the contents of my basket that I was catering a children's party or conducting a medical experiment into how quickly a person could develop diabetes via party rings. I've got slightly better with age, gradually adding ingredients such as peppers, peas, and tender stem broccoli, never regular, are you mad, to my repertoire, which could broadly be defined as beige. Still, I dread the moment when a new friend invites me to dinner and asks whether there's anything I don't eat. How long have you got? Restaurants are similarly fraught, and the wait to see whether my various substitutions have been successfully accommodated is always an anxious one, not least for my long-suffering boyfriend. For a while, I lied and claimed I had allergies, but my self-imposed rules are often contradictory. I eat cheddar or mozzarella, but only if they're melted. I used to feel self-conscious that people would think I had an eating disorder. Then I reconciled myself to the fact that Maybe I do. I'm not obsessed with my weight. It's more that the threshold of what I find disgusting is much lower than other people's. I used to watch I'm A Celebrity Get Me Out Of Here and consider how I'd rather eat a plate of witchetty grubs than a portion of coleslaw. A substance so offensive it feels transgressive, to name it out loud. There isn't any real logic to what I will and won't eat. Or at least not one others can understand. People are surprised to learn that I like spicy food. And on a group trip to Canada, I discovered that I could eat oysters as a party trick. I've never minded seafood because I've always liked the idea of being a mermaid, whereas being in the vicinity of a beetroot repulses me. All that purple juice. Sinister. You'd appreciate that it's quite hard to explain all of this without sounding unhinged. It's possible that I'm a super taster. I've certainly embraced this claim. I can often identify traces of my trigger ingredients that others would fail to notice, and my nemesis is chopping boards that harbour the flavours of foods I detest. I have a keen sense of smell, which meant that, in childhood, I'd be out the door down the street before anyone could finish opening a can of tuna. I'd sooner eat a urinal cake and imagine the taste would be proximate. My exasperated mum took me to a hypnotist when I was seven, but the session was quickly abandoned when the therapist said that while she could make me comfortable around problem foods, she couldn't go as far as actually making me eat them. Attempts to smuggle feared ingredients into food inevitably resulted in bouts of exorcist-style projectile vomiting. For a time, mum tried forcing me to sit at the table until I'd finished whatever was on my plate, but we soon discovered that I had something she didn't. Lots and lots of time. I often think how much richer life would be if only I could eat like a normal person. I'd be able to go on holiday without stuffing my hand luggage full of safe foods and could accept dinner invitations without protracted negotiations about potential venues. But is it even possible to teach an old dog, me, new tricks, seeing an omelette without gagging, I agree to meet psychologist Felix Economagis, who specialises in treating people with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID, the official term for food phobia, which was finally added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 2013. If I was expecting anything woo-woo, I was mistaken. Economagis, age 52, has the assured no-nonsense air of a man who has heard it all before. In fact, he tells me, I'm a mild case compared with a lot of people he sees, many of whom restrict themselves to just one or two foods and risk developing scurvy, rickets and even blindness. Having worked with patients experiencing phobias and anxiety disorders, he began applying the same framework to those with ARFID after being approached by the producers of Freaky Eaters on BBC3. Since then... He has seen more than 5,000 cases and has a 90% success rate, meaning that patients end a session able to eat foods they were previously terrified to try. Economagis is confident we will see results in just two hours and asks me to come armed with samples of 5 to 10 foods I'd like to be able to eat. It's an intimidating prospect. After consulting my boyfriend about which ingredients would be most transformative, I settle on curry containing mushrooms, since I am an aspiring vegetarian who never knowingly eats a vegetable, and onions. To me, they are like Tories. I wouldn't have one in the house, never mind my mouse. I also bring a Pret salad and a quiche brought from M&S in blind panic because I struggle to imagine anything more disgusting. Economagus' London office feels more like a study than a clinic, replete with slouchy sofas and thank-you cards from former patients, presumably scribbled between mouthfuls of ceviche and steak tartare. He begins by explaining the evolutionary roots of food phobias. In early childhood, we are naturally suspicious of the two things most likely to cause us harm, animals and food. For some people, this fear sticks, and we rationalise it by creating our own rules to keep us safe. He has seen people who won't eat green foods, or mushy foods, or two foods that they would eat individually but won't when they've touched on a plate. He has even seen chefs who can prepare all manner of dishes but have a mental block when it comes to eating certain ingredients. The fear, which I share, is that unsafe foods will cause you to retch or be sick. But the food itself is blameless, he explains. There is nothing inherent about an onion that makes me wretch. It is, don't laugh, my fear of onions. By eliminating the fear, you eliminate the symptoms. Because my fussy eating has always been such a huge source of personal embarrassment, I've become adept at evading questions about it, or obscuring my feelings with jokes at my own expense. It's a relief to have it taken seriously by somebody who understands the complexities and approaches them calmly and without judgment. Ekonomagis' confidence in my capacity for change is infectious. Before long, a problem that has felt insurmountable begins to seem like a simple misunderstanding that Ikonomagis is helping me to put right. He does most of the talking, occasionally pausing to ask whether I agree or disagree. Our aim is for me to develop into a scientific eater, someone who tries foods before deciding whether they like them, instead of discounting them on the basis of their old rules. Egonomagis explains that food phobia is not a rational fear, which is why logic-based solutions such as cognitive behavioural therapy tend not to work. Instead he aims to speak in the language of the subconscious and we complete a series of visualizations geared towards overcoming barriers to change. These are deceptively simple. In one, we extract the arfid part of my brain, the gatekeeper for which foods I do and don't feel comfortable eating. He thanks it for its attempts to keep me safe, but explains that these are now unnecessary. In another, I imagine a fork in the road where I can either choose to continue being restricted by my fears, or embrace a new path, By following the right path, I will become freer, healthier and less anxious. Finally, I close my eyes and enter a relaxed state as he reinforces the decisions I've made during our session. After just an hour, it's time for me to climb my own personal Everest and eat a mushroom. That morning, I'd opened a Tupperware to inspect the curry my boyfriend had lovingly cooked for me and violently retched. Now I feel calmer, determined, like Tom Daly on the highboard, assured that I can execute a daring stunt with grace, elegance, and not a trace of vomit. I transfer a translucent sliver of onion into my mouth and feel an immediate wave of crashing embarrassment. It tastes of nothing much. Was this what I'd spent decades running from? Emboldened, I try a larger piece of mushroom. The same again. It isn't slimy and doesn't have a strong flavour. It's like a large piece of corn. Spongy, but not unpleasant. Next up, quiche. Having loaded my fork with a gelatinous mound of yellow egg, I retch. This isn't ideal, but after some reassurance, I'm able to try again. This time, although it's not tasty, I manage to chew and swallow it. By now, I'm on a roll. Tipsy on my own power. I feel invincible. Recklessly, I eat a piece of cucumber. It's fine, like a slice of apple. The earth may not have moved, but I can see a new vista on my horizon one dotted with working lunches, fine dining, and no hush requests to please see the kids' menu. How do you feel? Asks Igonomagis. In truth, I feel a sense of anticlimax. It's as if I've spent years stealing myself to enter a haunted house, only to find it occupied by a fluffle of bunny rabbits. This is to be expected, he says. One of my colleagues described it as an underwhelming therapy that can have overwhelming results. The aim is for it to feel normal, because eating is a normal activity. Now comes the hard part. Over the next few weeks, I will have to commit to continuing to try new foods, if I can try 30, enjoy 10, hate 10, and feel indifferent to 10, then we will consider this session a success. Walking to the train, I feel slightly dazed and begin to doubt that I will be able to repeat the results without Economagus's handholding. Perhaps I could employ him as a kind of hype man who accompanies me to restaurants and shouts encouraging words when I'm confronted with dishes containing three or more ingredients. As it happens, I don't need to. In the weeks since our session, I've been so brave that a Pride of Britain award has begun to seem, if not inevitable, then certainly not impossible. I've continued to approach trying new foods scientifically, with an open mind about the results rather than an expectation of failure. I've tried everything from the everyday, roasted carrots, to the exotic, kimchi. At a wedding, I ate a canopy consisting of squash on some kind of unidentified fritter, And draw gasps from my friends is this how to upstage a bride without resorting to wearing white it's not a complete transformation during the wedding meal i balk at my burrata starter and swap it for the pasta and tomato sauce served to another guest jack 11 months shut up he loved his burrata still i'm making progress i've eaten curries and ramen and even added some onions to a sauce when I was alone in the house without anyone to congratulate me. If you are what you eat, then I can finally say that I am the whole package.
0: That was Foods I Have Never Eaten Cucumber, Onions, Carrots, Tomatoes, Eggs By Joe Stone Read by George Georgiou
3: That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph.
0: I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting the Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye! Welcome back to Weekend. Now, the veteran LGBT plus and human rights activist Peter Tatchell took a stand in Qatar recently and was swiftly told to leave the country. He talks to Zoe Williams about his many critics, his evangelical Christian mother, and what drives him to keep putting himself in danger. Read by George Georgiou.
2: I speak to Peter Tatchell by Zoom from Sydney, where he has recently arrived after his day in Qatar, protesting against that nation's human rights abuses. He hasn't slept in three days, but is perfectly lucid, and the weariness only tells in his minute corrections. No, let me rephrase that. Sorry, let me think. He's 70 years old, rung out, back in Australia, where he was born and raised, talking to me while fielding frequent phone calls. Has he no plans just to hang out for a bit, see some cousins? He's a bit bemused by the question. That'll be a very fine thing, But after Qatar, I've got two other campaigns coming up. Quiet time would be a stretch. I, with many others, have contributed to so many positive changes. It's a great motivator. The protest in Qatar, which happened on the 25th of October, comprised only Tatchell and a colleague, Simon Harris, from Tatchell's Eponymous Foundation. It featured a single placard which they had smuggled into the country between the pages of a copy of the Daily Telegraph. The only existing broadsheet newspaper today, he says, pleased at the irony of the paper coming in handy, despite itself. The wording on the placard was, Qatar arrests, jails and subjects LGBTs to conversion, hashtag Qatar anti-gay. I never dictated the terms, he says. I took the message directly from my contacts in Qatar. Tatchell held up his placard outside the National Museum of Qatar in Doha, at 11.30am. A Muslim woman walked past, he says, a horrified look on her face. She said, you'd better put that away, you'll end up in prison. He corrects himself. Maybe those weren't her exact words. She basically warned me that it's not permitted. He didn't put it away, and 35 minutes later, state security officials arrived in big white land cruisers, the police soon joining them, nine men in all. Harris managed to upload some video of the protest on Instagram. Tatchell looks dignified, solitary and incongruous, stood on sandy pebbles in front of the statement architecture of the museum, before the police took his camera and deleted the rest. The pair's details were taken, their documents scrutinised. Tatchell says they were told what you're doing is illegal, it's not permitted in Qatar. The conversation was a mixture of broken English and broken French, it was very clear That we were not free to leave. We were there for 49 minutes before they eventually said, okay we advise you to go to the airport and get your flight. I interpreted that as a warning. There was some beef on social media later as Tatchell's YouTube channel had described the men as being seized by the Qatari security services. One academic at Qatar's research university complained that Tatchell had misled people, lied even, since they were not arrested. It was just a fog of protest, the office losing contact briefly with Tatchell and Harris. Maybe Tatchell himself puts things a little strongly at times, but it's hard to overstate how much sheer cortisol is coursing through the man during actions like these. I knew that it was possible I'd spend some time in a police cell and possibly be prosecuted, even jailed. The view was that it was unlikely, and more likely that I'd be deported straight to Sydney. But I was very anxious, and we were always worrying that we'd made some inadvertent misstep and put the security services onto us. On Sunday night, before they left London, I hardly slept, rehearsing in my mind all the different scenarios. On the Monday night, it was an overnight flight, I was so anxious I couldn't sleep a wink. In Doha, on the day of the protest, my stomach was churning over. I had a very strong headache, and despite the heat, I felt cold and a bit shivery. I had a constant urge to urinate and defecate. The idea that he does this stuff blithely for self-promotion is for the birds, I think. Yet as last year's Netflix documentary Hating Peter Tatchell puts it pithily, he is the focal point of an awful lot of hatred. I've got a lot of bile and hatred against me over the decades because I ruffle feathers. I've made powerful people and their apologists very angry. It's led to tens of thousands of hate mails, hundreds of death threats, hundreds of violent assaults. He says this in a matter-of-fact kind of way, but has said in the past that the assaults have left him with PTSD and minor permanent brain and eye injuries. Much less violent, but still a drumbeat, is the criticism from the liberal left, which clusters around the idea that he does it all for attention and is a little bit ridiculous. But if you engage seriously with what Tatchell is saying, I feel that he's only doing what we all should be doing. The World Cup is about to take place in a country where LGBT plus people, women and migrant workers are oppressed and victimized. In waving this through on the promise that Qatar would somehow change between the decision in 2010 and now, FIFA has legitimized the nation's impunity and traduced the idea of universal human rights as a minimum entry requirement into the international club. The Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, this was presumably inadvertent, like so many of his remarks, distilled what this actually means when he asked football fans to be respectful of the host nation, concluding, I think with a little bit of flex and compromise at both ends, it can be a safe and secure World Cup. Be a bit less gay, fellas, just for a couple of weeks, and it'll all be fine. Prince William has just announced he won't be attending citing a diary clash. Given that he's president of the FA and the dates have been well known for a year, this is, as Tatchell points out, implausible. The method of Tatchell's protest wasn't new. He staged a similar one in 2018 outside the Kremlin in Moscow, which was not his first rodeo there either. He got his head kicked in in 2007, when I went to support the very brave Russian LGBT plus campaigners, who was seeking to hold a lawful pride parade, he recalls. But the Qatar one was months in the planning, because it's one of the world's most highly surveilled societies. Tatchell says he and Harris studiously avoided being seen together, or even making eye contact, from the moment they arrived at Heathrow, so that if one of them was arrested, the other might not be. We were advised that there was a high probability that I would be refused entry at the airport, Tatchell says, and he had made up a story prepared about having to go back to Australia to deal with my mother's death and to clear up her property and possessions. I am moved to check, at this point, whether or not his mother is still alive. No, he says. She died in July. Would she have approved of this subterfuge? Or would she be looking down, going, Son, I'm barely even cold in the ground, and you've turned me into a campaign tactic? He considers this carefully. She grew up in the 1930s in a very conservative, working-class family. She wasn't political, but she was an evangelical Christian in the Pentecostal faith. Pretty hardcore, but what is interesting is that over the years she grew. She supported my human rights work. She still does believe, he corrects himself, she still did believe until the day she died that homosexuality is wrong. But she came to the point that it's certainly not a major sin And that homophobia is a worse sin this is an extremely conflicted moral position that it's bad to be gay and to be anti-gay one can't help but notice the contrast with her son's moral clarity which is absolute the primary motivation of my work has always been a love of other people and a love of freedom justice and equality of all human beings on this planet i wouldn't like to suffer if i was suffering I'd want other people to help. Tatchell recently celebrated on social media that it was 53 years since his first LGBT protest at the age of 17. His quest for justice predates even that. In 1963, four young girls were killed in a racist bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, and this seeded his lifelong fight against prejudice of all kinds. It's a very telling origin story because he was in Melbourne at the time, and at 11 years old, Alabama was impossibly far away, and he was just a kid. Thatcher arrived in London in 1971, fleeing the draft in Australia, and was at the vanguard of LGBT plus activism from the start, as one of the organisers of the first Pride events in 1972, and a key member of the Gay Liberation Front until its demise in 1974. To the self-styled hippies, anarchists, feminists and counterculturals, he was a well-known figure. But this activism was extremely niche, partly because it was so high-risk. Violent assault by organised gangs of racists and homophobes was common. By the mid-80s, though, he was beginning to be a household name as the visibility of the cause grew, and thanks in part to the Bermondsey by-election, which... If you want a whistle-stop tour of savage British homophobia in the political and media classes, you should definitely Google. In the 90s, he started Outrage, a direct-action LGBT plus group, and by this time, he was a household name. Yet, he never became a mainstream figure, having little interest in the media element of activism and the sofas on current affairs shows. He has a long-term partner, whose close relationship with his mother he describes to illustrate how much she changed. She was always supportive of my partner, and that's an incredible thing for someone of quite an extreme religious upbringing. Throughout his life, Tatchell's campaigns have had this roaming, slingshot quality. David on tour, looking for Goliath. What does this guy who lives in Elephant and Castle, South London, think he's doing in Memphis, confronting Mike Tyson, as he did in 2002, with some more homemade placards? Mike Tyson, stop your homophobia! And... Knock out Tyson's sexism and homo-hatred. Who does he think he is, staging, in 1999, a citizen's arrest of Robert Mugabe on his way into Harrods? The mixture of naivety, audacity, certainty, single-mindedness, all of it so intense, isn't unique. You could probably build a through-line all the way from Joan of Arc to Greta Thunberg, but it's exceptional. These are issue saints, people who see things very simply to whom the world responds in emotionally complicated ways. To him, of course, his choice of causes is obvious. I tend to focus on campaigns where activists or victims in communities have asked for my support, he says. So I completely support the struggle for democracy in Myanmar, but lots of people are supporting that campaign. I choose the campaigns that aren't getting the same focus. Precisely because he concentrates on the niche, the untended, the obscure, He often becomes the story, which is what leads to the accusation that he has white saviour complex, a top-down great man of history approach that fails to properly respect both the grassroots campaigns and their cultural context. This was levelled at him after Qatar on social media, since deleted, and he gives it short shrift. He was deeply involved with civil rights activist groups in Qatar, not just LGBT plus causes, as well as feminist and migrants' rights. The malcontents were a side group. For many weeks I offered to help amplify Qatari LGBT voices. I arranged trusted journalists and secure interview encryption methods. But no one in the online group that is now criticizing me was willing or able to give interviews, not even anonymously. That's another reason why I did the protest. More broadly though, he thinks this is part of the problem that relativism has become a fashionable stance among liberals in the West. The collision of post-colonial guilt no regime can be as bad as anything we were in our pomp, and cultural sensitivity maybe these women are more comfortable wearing a hijab it's as if non-white people don't merit the same solidarity he says indignantly every year on international women's day women in iran rally to demand an end to the hijab those women are beaten and imprisoned but there's hardly a squeak in the western media I can just imagine him on his own in Valias Square with a placard saying, women demand an end to patriarchal oppression, and a load of haters on TikTok asking, why is a dude saying this? Because that's no ordinary dude. That is Peter Tatchell. The last time I met Tatchell was six years ago, when he was embroiled in a row with the NUS. Their LGBT rep wouldn't share a platform with him because he'd signed an open letter against no platforming which she said was transphobic. The level of toxic vitriol, he says, is completely off the scale compared to just six years ago. My response is always that biological sex and gender identity are two different things, but both are equally valid. There doesn't need to be a conflict between the two. When I was supporting the women's liberation movement in the early 1970s, the slogan was, Biology is not destiny. Now some sections of the women's movement seem to be saying that biology is destiny. He draws on decades of deep knowledge to illustrate his points. The importance of international amplification he remembers from the anti-apartheid campaigns of the 70s, what he sees as the left's problem with female and LGBT plus emancipation. I was denounced by many on the left as an apologist for capitalism and imperialism, reminds him of the first-ever gay rights protest in a communist country, East Germany, in 1973. He hasn't come out unscathed from this life. It's very tough, he says at one point. I have periods of real emotional meltdown and depression, feeling that despite the efforts of myself and many, many other people, we haven't been able to prevent some terrible abuses. But lots of the issues that I and others championed decades ago are now mainstream, he adds. Besides, when you're living under a tyrannical regime, you need international solidarity. The role of issues that need to be addressed is endless.
0: That was I've Had Hundreds of Death Threats, Hundreds of Violent Assaults. Peter Tatchell on Homophobia, Hope and Qatar by Zoe Williams. Read by George Georgiou. Finally, social media has made finding love easier, but ending relationships even messier. Here, Louis Staples explains how to break up online without losing your mind. Read by Emma Stannard.
1: When I was 16, back in 2009, I got my first boyfriend. The whirlwind romance began unexpectedly after a school trip and a few too many shots of cheap vodka. Thankfully, the relationship outlasted the hangover. Until this point, I had watched from the sidelines as my friend's doomed teenage romances played out on MSN Messenger. Here, a sign of true love was adding a significant other's initials to your screen name. Adding a crush to your MSN name was a very big deal, and when it, inevitably, fell apart, it would be dramatically replaced with a broken heart or some sad song lyrics. Suddenly, I found myself participating in these adolescent online rituals. I was newly obsessed with Facebook at the time, and it had already warped my insecure young mind into thinking that the marker of a real relationship was one that was Facebook official. After I'd badgered my boyfriend for longer than I'd like to admit, he agreed to be in a relationship with me. The only problem was we broke up two weeks later, so I had to declare myself single again. Oh, the indignity. Social media has made it easier to find romantic connections and share them with the world but it has also made the end of relationships much messier. With so much of our lives now lived online there are more factors to consider at the end. Should you delete and block your ex on social media? Remove all photos of them from your Instagram? And what about the WhatsApp group chats you're both a part of? Who gets custody of those? A good friend of mine recently faced this dilemma. Four years into her last relationship, she was finally invited to join her then-boyfriend's family WhatsApp chat. But when they parted ways three years later, she agonised over the best way to exit the chat. I felt really sad about leaving because it was the main connection I had with his family, she says. So when we finally agreed that it was over, I composed the most dignified message I could and left. This goodbye turned out to be a helpful way of making a very drawn-out breakup feel final. Psychologist Ian McRae, author of a new book, Dark Social, which looks at the negative side of social media, agrees that severing digital ties can be an important part of moving on. In the past 10 years, there has been a lot of psychological research about the importance of forgetting as a process for refocusing our minds, he says. A big problem with social media is that constantly seeing updates can make it harder to forget someone, particularly if we are fed memories and photos digitally by apps, perhaps of a special holiday or anniversary. If you're trying to be in control of what relationships you're focusing on and what memories you choose to let go of, being fed that stuff externally can be counterproductive, McRae says. So leaving a group chat or unfollowing someone can actually be a really healthy way of moving on. But forgetting an ex is not always that simple, as most people who have been through a tough breakup know. British Vogue's dating columnist Annie Lord, author of breakup memoir Notes on Heartbreak, says the road towards cutting ties digitally is often messy. Seeing their Instagram story and crying, then screwing up and messaging them, it's all part of the process, she says. When it comes to stopping all contact, Lord thinks this can actually be a way of sending a coded message. Blocking someone is a way to make yourself feel in control, like you're doing something, she says. But you're definitely still hoping they'll notice, so it's still a way of communicating with them. Social media encourages endless forms of this type of covert communication, which are hardly conducive to moving on from a breakup. Purposefully liking a mutual friend's pictures, which your ex is bound to see, is a popular provocation. Another one is erasing them from your Instagram grid. I find that horrible. The idea that those memories didn't happen or didn't mean anything, Lord says. The scariest thing with breakups is the idea it was all a waste. That's what someone deleting your pictures can feel like, as if you never existed. Deleting pictures of an ex might also be a step towards someone rebranding themselves as single. A lot of dating and hookup apps like Hinge, Tinder and Grindr have the option to link to Instagram. So it's useful not to have potential partners seeing lots of coupled up pictures. When it comes to rebranding, the idea of social media soft launching went mainstream in 2020, when comedian Rachel Sennett tweeted, Congrats on the Instagram soft launch of your boyfriend. A soft launch is corporate jargon for introducing a new product, shampoo, toy, restaurant, to a limited group, so any flaws can be ironed out before it's made widely available. Sennett's joke went viral because it's true, On social media, it has become the norm to see people approach their romantic lives like this. Rather than opting for a big reveal, a new relationship or newfound singledom is instead hinted at and slowly introduced. Lord says soft launching yourself as single is about striking a delicate balance. Posting hot pics of yourself can feel empowering, she says. But if someone was looking at my pictures thinking, oh, she's just gone through a breakup, I'd be embarrassed about giving off big breakup energy. Washington Post columnist Taylor Lorenz, who specialises in internet culture, thinks soft launching shows how public relations strategies have become ingrained in our lives. The bizarre phenomenon of influencer breakup videos is another much more blatant form of PR In 2018, YouTuber couple Liza Koshy and David Dobrik announced the end of their three-year relationship in a tearful breakup video. It was viewed 17 million times in a matter of days and felt representative of the public relationship that their fans, 20 million combined subscribers at the time, had watched unfold. We saw them grapple with trying to maintain the openness their audience expects while still communicating something personal, says Lorenz. These videos are also about trying to stop one person's brand from taking a hit. If their followers think one person is at fault, their brand will suffer. Influencers who don't approach breakups with the openness their followers expect can run into trouble. In 2020, lifestyle influencer Naomi Smart broke up with her fiancé, but a lack of information about why sent some fans into a frenzy of speculation. In the traditional PR world, saying as little as possible after a breakup puts you in a stronger position. That's why celebrity couples would often put out a statement, then say nothing, Lorenz says. But in the new social media landscape, if you don't put your narrative out there, people will create one for you. All this may sound far removed from everyday life people, where people are unlikely to post breakup videos, but it's not unusual to see someone you know calling out their cheating ex on Facebook, which is a chaotic attempt at putting their narrative out there. In the past year, two couples I follow, by no means celebrities or influencers, posted short breakup statements on their Instagram stories. I've definitely found myself feeling oddly aggrieved and very curious when a relationship that was heavily promoted on social media suddenly ends. Without any explanation, I'm left to look for clues about what really happened. Ordinary people are dealing with these pressures on a much smaller scale, Lorenz says. But influencer culture absolutely has trickled down and forced everyone to operate this way. There's a spectator in all of our lives now. The minefield of digital breakups is partly why Adam, who contacted me on Twitter, doesn't share his relationship on social media. I used to be an oversharer, probably to compensate for feeling insecure in my last relationship, he says. When my boyfriend broke up with me, knowing I had created that perfect image of our relationship only made me feel worse. Now he only occasionally shares pictures taken with his new boyfriend using Instagram's close friends feature. This approach goes against the grain in a digital landscape where we're encouraged to share as much as possible and a society where relationships are a status symbol. It also suggests a belief that if there's no digital footprint of a relationship, you're spared part of the breakup. If a relationship doesn't live online, it doesn't have to die there either. Although I don't buy into that philosophy entirely, The fact that I'm still smarting about declaring myself single on Facebook 13 years ago proves that the digital side of breakups can stay with us. Is there a right way to break up online? With so many digital curveballs being thrown our way, it's about striking a balance. Holding on to memories, but also letting yourself forget things. Setting digital boundaries and trying to stick to them being authentic without oversharing. What you think is best for you in the moment versus what is actually going to help you move on and heal. Perhaps the most important part of breaking up online is pushing back against social media's influence. The paradox here is that the more you deliberately try to forget someone, the more you're strengthening those memories, McRae says. If you're likely to click on posts from your ex, these platforms will prioritise notifications about them. A productive digital break-up will limit these unwanted reminders, at least initially. If you're getting into a social media spiral, turn off notifications or uninstall the app, says Ray. This is healthy and can help you to focus on other things instead of replaying what went wrong. But, of course some of this is much easier said than done. To resurrect a vintage Facebookism, it's complicated.
0: That was How Do You Break Up With Someone In The Digital Age by Louis Staples, read by Emma Stannard. Before we go, we wanted to tell you about Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph, a brand new 10 part series from The Guardian, out now. Each week, Shantae will look into current pop and internet culture stories everyone is talking about. This podcast is for anyone who loves pop and internet culture and wants to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives. Listen to a new episode every Thursday. Just search for Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles were read by Emma Stannard and George Georgiou and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Max Anderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
3: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.